0: Science. Hey everyone, welcome to Quarantine Probably Science again. I'm Matt Kirshen. I'm Eddie Wood. Here we are. <laughs> Here we are. We're still recording via Skype. Um, so when we get onto the actual main bit with the guest, the audio quality will be a little bit patchier than we used to. Uh, we're working out ways around right now to do three-way skype calls that are recorded each individually at each end and clearer uh so you get better sound quality but in the meantime this is a bit of a makeshift system hope you're okay with this Our, our guest for this episode is uh professor barry c fox md he is both a medical doctor and a professor of infectious diseases and we found him because he is one of the course lecturers at the great courses plus one of the things i did when this whole thing started was to look on great courses and find out what they uh have in the way of infectious diseases courses and he he is the guy who teaches the class on this uh, and so uh, we reached out to our friends at the great courses plus the people who set up the sponsorship that they do with us and said hey any chance you could get in touch with this professor and see if he'd be willing to come onto the show and he said yes so that's what we have and uh I, I hope you enjoy this coronavirus special, this episode with uh, Doctor Barry Fox.
1: Yeah, and I think we'll try to put out more frequent episodes, um, especially if they can be topical in this way, because obviously everything's changing day to day. So we'll get this out quickly. Yeah, and, and since uh,
0: everyone's skyping it as well, we—it's a lot, of, and all of our various co- comedy friends are at home as well. It's a le- easier to. Organized logistics, we could just say, hey, do you fancy hopping on Skype right now and doing uh, an episode with us? So hopefully we'll be doing a few more with our friends who are normally too busy and successful to (laughs) easily access.
1: It sort of leveled leveled the playing field a little bit, didn't it? Everyone kind of got to... It is. (laughs)
0: All of our friends are currently sitting on their asses looking for things to do, so we're gonna hopefully bring you some more episodes, give you some stuff to listen to and enjoy while you are also sitting on your respective asses <laughs> in your respective homes. Um, if you've got, uh, we'll, we're gonna do some regular episodes as well, just where we're covering non-coronavirus stories, uh, and we're gonna try and do some special episodes where we go into the specifics with various experts and people who have direct knowledge or information uh so this is one of those this is dr barry fox who is a professor of infectious diseases and uh and a practicing doctor and one of the lecturers on the great courses plus um and if you want to listen to any of the or watch any of the other great courses plus courses including um dr fox's you can go to the great courses plus slash probably and you will get a month free 30 day free Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Fox. So, just just to introduce you to our listeners, you are both a clinical professor of infectious diseases at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health. So, this is you, you teach this, you research this, but also you you're also a practicing doctor. You're a you're an intern. You're a doctor
2: of internal medicine, right? In- internal medicine with a specialty in infectious diseases. Yes.
0: So you are kind of the perfect person to be talking to at exactly this very strange moment. Th- thank you for taking time away from actually treating people to be uh, uh, talking to our listeners. Uh, c- can we start? Uh, obviously, I-, I want we're going to mostly be focusing this on the whole coronavirus thing, but um, can we also just talk for a little bit about what are infectious diseases and what the differences between the different kinds of infectious diseases? Between bacterial, viral, and fungal, and then sort of tick-borne and insect-borne.
2: Uh, sure. Well, um, I, I guess I wasn't quite prepared for that uh, general oversight, but uh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> that, that's what the that's what the great courses infectious disease courses intended to give people uh, an opportunity to to see that uh, spectrum right. of, of, of uh, organisms here. So, I mean, infectious diseases are medical conditions caused by microorganisms of various uh, shapes, uh, uh, sizes, and uh, derivatives. Uh, And again, as you alluded to here, we have, you know, bacterial, we have a viral, uh, we have fungal, uh, and then there's a variety of organisms that I call in my course, uh, kind of somewhere between a, a bacteria and somewhere between a virus. Um, the, the, a couple of the things that you mentioned here, like ticks and mosquitoes and things like that, are what we call vectors of infectious diseases. So they carry uh, viruses, they carry bacteria, they may carry parasites, uh, including, for example, malaria, which is uh, still the number one cause of death in the world. Um, but, uh, you know, there's there's a whole spectrum or array of, of microorganisms uh, that can cause uh, infectious diseases. Uh, and, you know, interestingly, you know, just because you have an organism on your skin or in your intestines or have a virus uh, in your intestines or on your body doesn't mean that you're actually going to be infected. Uh, there there's certain characteristics of the of the germ and there's certain characteristics of the person and their host immune system that would lead to whether the uh, germ uh, stays in a, a state where it doesn't harm uh, a human or whether it, it might, ha- might harm a human. So that's called what we call pathogenicity. And we talk a little bit more about that also uh, in the course as well.
0: So so I, I, I've I had a chance to watch some of the course, and it's remarkably prescient because you start off by talking about outbreaks like the Ebola outbreak, and then you end by the final lecture is actually sort of, predicting what might be the next outbreak. Obviously, this was recorded and produced uh, quite a bit before what's happening right now. And you sort of go through narrowing it down. The, the only miss is that you you end up leaning more towards flu as being a bit more likely than a SARS-type outbreak. But you're, you're basically dead on. Could, could we talk about what's making this current outbreak so dangerous and and how it has become so prevalent so incredibly quickly, and even what is it?
2: Sure, so we're, we're dealing with a, a, a viral uh, a pandemic uh, from what's called a corona virus, and it gets its name uh, kind of why it, what it looks like under the electron microscope. Uh, listeners might be uh, uh, amazed to know that we didn't know what a virus was until the early um, uh, 20th century, uh, bacteria were, were only discovered uh, in, in the 1880s uh, and, and we knew that there were viruses uh, out there or there was something smaller than bacteria, they didn't call them viruses and it took the uh, development of the electron microscope, I can't remember exactly which year, but it was around 1920 or so uh, to know that there was such a, uh, a, an organism that could cause a disease. So when the in 1918 flu uh, pandemic of 100 years ago was there they actually didn't know they knew what well, they didn't know that it was really a virus uh, as a, as a life form. So that's kind of amazing to to think about. But anyway, getting getting back to your question, that the coronavirus gets its name from the shape that it looks like under the uh, electron microscope, with a variety of different uh, projections from the surface of the virus, uh, and, and that's how it gets its name. Um, and uh, there there are now, I believe, seven uh, known coronaviruses that have the potential to affect humans we've always known that there were four types that caused a just a cold okay uh or rhinovirus a cold type of illness that really so, didn't. so
0: be- so is the common the common head colds the common cold just is that a type of coronavirus then
2: well if you use the slang word cold then the answer is a coronavirus could be one of the things that causes a cold. More typically, what we colds are caused by what's called rhinoviruses. Uh, again, but it'd be hard to distinguish between the rhinoviruses and the uh, the four uh, uh, b- benign forms of, of coronavirus. What I was uh, leading up to is that um, there, there's the four uh, benign coronaviruses, and then uh, we we heard about the SARS. Uh, uh, coronavirus, which was in 2002 and 2003, uh, and then another one called MERS, or Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, which uh, uh, took uh, took hold a a little bit later uh, and is uh, still uh, also uh, evident in certain parts of the Middle East and parts of the country now. So most people don't know that there are still small cases of MERS, uh, M-E-R-S, that are out there. But anyway, this, this uh, new, vir- new form of the coronavirus, uh, we didn't know that it was a coronavirus. We, we had a pretty good guess after this first emerged in China uh, a, a few months ago. Uh, and then uh, it was uh, identified and, and uh, re- relatively quickly based on the epidemiology. And indeed, they, because uh, the, we know a little bit about the molecular biology of the, of the virus, we were able to actually able to pin down kind of a fingerprinting, uh, for the virus, uh, uh, relatively early. So, uh, so let me take take us back to our question here. Um, right. Uh, so uh, coronavirus is the is the cause for the current uh, current illness, and uh, the reason that this has been uh, relatively problematic and that's that's not necessarily predicted as the final outcome for my course is because the other coronaviruses uh, that were MERS and SARS which had a mortality rate somewhere between 15 and 30%, uh, had uh, an incubation period that was somewhere between 5 to 14 days. And also, it did not appear that individuals that had the virus but were not sick could actually spread the virus to other humans. So with the identification of SARS and MERS, And with the initiation of uh, implementation of social isolation, but specifically quarantine for a number of days, the uh, SARS outbreak in particular was able to be brought under control because it did not have those uh, other conditions, meaning it was not transmitted before someone knew that they actually had the virus uh, in the, uh, quote, asymptomatic state. Uh, and, and secondly, because the incubation period tended to be a little bit longer in the five to 14 days. Uh, and this uh, virus, coronavirus, seem, people can become symptomatic within uh, a couple of days, although the median duration of symptoms uh, onset is still at uh, five days. And the, right, the third, this is uh,
0: Sorry, sorry, you, I, I cut you off, please. Can I sorry. There,
2: there's one more factor that, that's, that's important for this particular virus, Uh, Again, this is uh, being studied now and will be studied for a long time to come. But the virus uh, seems to have receptors that make it ideal to not only infect the nose and the back of the throat, but also seems to have receptors that are a little bit more uh, able to navigate into the lungs. So a a variety of the symptoms that are associated with this particular coronavirus are more likely to be cough and shortness of breath uh, than necessarily a runny or stuffy nose that you might have with a a, a typical cold. Just to clarify some terms
1: from earlier, incubation period refers to the time between contracting and being symptomatic or between contracting and being able to
2: retransmit? Yeah, it's it's usually referred to as the time between contraction and being symptomatic. Yes. Okay.
0: So this is something that uh, you... you You've talked about, you talk about in the course, in terms of making a perfect epidemic, it needs to hit these sort of sweet spots between the incubation period, but also the fatality rate. Interestingly, for it to be a really dangerous pandemic, it can't be too high and too immediate. You, you talk about one of the reasons why Ebola to, wasn't as widespread and dangerous is because people die of it too quickly, so it doesn't get passed on to as many people.
2: That's correct, and that, that, that is, that's true. That we talk about it in the course, and that is, uh, again, there, there's, a, there's a virus sweet spot. You know, it, it involves several variables, uh, including this uh, incubation period, the actual uh, virulence itself, but uh, having a, a, ver- a death rate that is somewhere between influenza, which is somewhere between a tenth of a percent and a half of a percent, Although in the 1918 influenza uh, outbreak, it was it was likely much higher than that. Uh, but having a, a, a mortality rate that uh, hovers uh, uh, under five percent allows the virus to to spread and actually favors the transmission of the virus. I, I've never quite understood sort
0: of what exactly is a virus in terms of because it's, it's sort of seemingly less than a, a bacterium in that it's it's not. It's sort of semi-living, not really living. It has to share living elements with the host.
2: Okay, so a virus uh, is a relatively primitive life form, uh, but yet primitive but deadly. Uh, It it has genetic material that's on the inside that's either uh, deoxyribonucleic acid or DNA or uh, RNA. Uh, And we won't get into the technical details uh, of that, but uh, then uh, often it's it's surrounded by an, an envelope. Uh, which uh, has a variety of uh, characteristics, which kind of keeps the nucleic acid and the genetic content in the middle. Uh, and then some viruses have a, cap- a capsule and some viruses don't. Uh, and again, the details of that are, are not important, but we do believe that the coronavirus is an enveloped virus and, and hence one of the reasons that alcohol hand gels, for example, and bleaches are uh, relatively effective on the, on the virus. I don't want to get too far off, off the subject here of what you're asking. So a virus itself can't really go anywhere by itself. What it has to do is uh, attach to human or other uh, cells uh, and then it is able to uh, gain entry into the cells via a variety of uh, a physiologic uh, things once the surface receptors are triggered. Uh, And then it goes into the host human cell, and then it it tricks the host human cell into a a feeling that it it represents its own DNA or RNA, and it turns on the host cell machinery. And this leads to actually a reproduction of the virus and not anything that's that's beneficial uh, to the the human uh, host. Uh, and then when it's when it's done uh, replicating inside the cell, it kind of knocks on the door, and it has certain receptors that allows it to uh, to get out into the uh, blood and, and to spread. So it's really a perfect, you know, it is a parasite. If you think of a term parasite, we've seen movies with uh, with something that's called a parasite on a on a macroscopic basis where you can visually see it, uh, or people have seen worms uh, and, and and things like that, but This is a a microscopic parasite, and it it is totally dependent upon what we call the host uh, and the human – it doesn't have to be a human, but a host machinery uh, of the cells to to survive and to propagate.
0: You you touched on this. I'm more than happy with diversions. We go on diversions all the time on this show. Um, You talked about because it's an envelope – it's thought to be an envelope uh, virus. That does mean that these alcohol hand gels and – it seems to be – relatively easy to kill albeit extremely hard to avoid the spread so this thing this particular virus can be spread multiple ways right it's sort of through droplets through contact so do we know do we know how much do we know so far about how it can be spread and how to prevent it
2: all right so good question here so um we know that it there and we go into this in the course as well Uh, about transmissibility as another important what we call virulence factor for causing a pandemic. So um, uh, 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 microorganisms are transmitted by direct contact, by touching either one another or touching surfaces, uh, or um, what we talk about quite a bit in the course is something called the the fecal-oral route, and that sounds a bit disgusting, but (laughs) it just... It just basically means that you're touching your own mouth uh, and you may end up introducing something into your intestine. And then when you're you know, defecating, um, uh, the organism or, or microorganism can be picked up again as you're, as you're doing that. I mean, this is on a microscopic basis, but um, Wait, is so, that cholera is one of cholera is transmitted that way, right? Uh, cholera is transmitted that way. Yes. Uh, yeah. and, and also uh, a number of uh, bacterial Well, cholera is a bacteria, but other other things like salmonella and shigella and other uh, uh, bacterial uh, intestinal diseases are also transmitted by the uh, fecal oral route. But there are viruses like hepatitis A, which is also transmitted by the fecal oral route. Uh, And um, but I don't want to get off on the fecal oral route because that's not the major means of this virus spread. It is is a direct contact and. Uh, the contact can also be not directly because uh, if, you, if there's a – well, let me get into the second mode of transmission here, which is by droplets. So when even when I'm speaking on this podcast now, I'm trying to generate my voice, and I'm likely generating a small aerosol of very small particles that are traveling on the average a distance of three to the most six feet before these particles will – drop and fall to the ground or fall to a table or fall to a surface. Um, So if, if people are congregating within that six foot radius, then they have a potential not by contact, but actually to breathe in that aerosol directly into the nose and the back of the throat and, and, and into the lungs uh, and, um, and, and get the virus. If you're talking about a contact, I should elaborate that the contact with one another or with various surfaces, Uh, you have to actually touch your eyes or you have to touch your nose. You have to touch your mouth and what we call inoculate the mucous membranes of the eyes, nose and mouth in order for the virus to get into the body. So the virus is not going to say burrow through uh, intact skin just because you touch something to get into the body. And this is again, why the, the common sense advice has been, don't touch your face. Don't touch your nose. Don't touch your mouth. Which, unfortunately, as human beings, we are prone <laughs> to doing because humans touch their touch their face and touch their their uh, their touch their face somewhere between six to twelve times per hour when people have done observational studies uh, regarding this. Here, so it's it's a hard habit to to kick. So the spread is by um, uh, the aerosol route. The spread is by direct contact, or the spread is by contact with a surface, which then is touched and then inoculated into one of these, the mucous membranes of the, of the body. Again, the eyes, uh, the nose, uh, or the mouth. Um, now, one of the questions that might come up from, from listeners is, how long can the virus actually survive on inanimate surfaces? How long can it survive on a table? How long can it survive on the floor? How long can it survive on a, a grocery box that's delivered from the grocery store. And you know there, there is some information on that. Although, uh, and again, this was actually published in the New England Journal of Medicine in the last 48 hours, but uh, the, the conditions by which they did the experiments were, were actually experimental. So the, the exact answer is not out there. But the, the point is the virus likely can survive for somewhere between 24 hours to five to seven days depending upon what surface it lands on, depending on what the temperature is in the room, depending upon whether there's any moisture that's on the surface. Uh, and um, so, so the virus can be transmitted by intermediary uh, type of objects. And, and hence, I'm going to point out one that I think is, is a pitfall that, that FedEx and United Parcel Services have picked up on in that all of our you know, electronic agents signing for pens, signing for for groceries and, and on these electronic boards now, uh, those pens are a perfect uh, vector for one touching right. and another time picking up these things, and then people touching their faces and mouths. Now, this is not the only one, but this is one of these hidden electronic devices. Which, uh, fortunately, uh, I, I got a push email from FedEx and talked to my UPS driver today, and, and they're they're not requesting signatures uh, anymore. But anyway, the point uh-huh. is a, a third a third An inanimate object is a way to transmit the uh, coronavirus now. Unfortunately, I just signed one of those documents
1: 10 minutes before we started recording. (laughs) Did you wash your hands afterwards, Andy? I did. The dumb thing is I felt the social pressure not to make – it was a service guy coming out to service this propane tank. And I was watching your course, Dr. Fox, um, and he came in and I also felt guilty that that he might have been hearing these things that seem alarmist (laughs) to walk into – so then I didn't want to say on top of what you just heard, I also don't want to touch you or come near you or sign this pen you just gave me. So I signed it and then washed my hands right away. But, but still, is, yeah, not, those, not the best that idea. That is
0: remarkable, those social pressures. Like it, it, I think, we, you know, we have to do a sort of recalculating. Like last, just last week before we were fully um, quarantined, I, I, I was in the Bay Area and I had a show and everyone was being very careful, you know, hand washing and hand sanitizer everywhere. But it's still like, you know, a uh, uh someone I, came up and petted the dog of my, my friend's dog and her husband had been coughing and he was like, wanted to drag the dog away before, before she had a chance to pet it. But she, it, there's this huge social pressure not to go like, oh, don't touch God. my dog or shouted a, <laughs> a woman in her sixties. just, it, it's, it's very hard not to do that, but that that's the new world we have to be in to sort of be like, find different polite ways to go. I'm going to decline to do what used to be a, a polite social interaction.
2: Right, and I happened to be in Washington about uh, four weeks ago when the outbreak was just starting and was not in Washington D.C. at the time. But uh, I met with the uh, Wisconsin uh, uh, representative, my local House of Representative uh, person, for uh, talking about antimicrobial resistance. And uh, you know, I, I started bumping elbows as he offered his hand to me. And I said, this is going to be the new norm, so you should get used to it. So, yes, particularly in Washington, it was it was, as you know, and you can see on TV, it was not the new norm till about a week ago.
0: Right. And that, that that really is a case where you sort of you need your leaders to lead by example. And, you know, and they should be they should ideally be taking their cue from someone like yourself and then passing that message on to the population.
2: Exactly. When
1: it comes to these transmissibility factors, is there nothing that's that's consistent across all coronaviruses as far as whether they can be transmitted, um, like how long they stay in the air? Wouldn't they be about the same size and therefore kind of fall similarly? Or are, is there a big range within this family of viruses and how they would behave in terms of
2: well, they, aerosol? Or- well, they, they would all behave the same way among the coronaviruses, although I, I will mention, and, and it's a little hard to go into right now, uh, it, it is Thought, it was thought at the time that when um, when SARS first came out, that, that there was the potential to be transmitted in what we call an airborne manner, okay? And I'm not sure we've completely excluded that for the current coronavirus as well. And what that means is that the virus can spread and be suspended in particles that will not fall to the ground within that six-foot radius, and, and hence have the potential to to be transmitted beyond that six foot six foot distance, and that was one. That was also another factor for uh, causing uh, pandemics. So the the more common and, and known virus that does is, is is measles, and measles can be airborne. Chickenpox can be airborne, and and that's the reason why if one person has measles, the average number of measles cases that happens after a measles exposure is somewhere between 16 to 20 okay and, and this the coronavirus now if one person has it the the what's called the r naught which is the a, a mathematical term for how many people that this could be transmitted to is running somewhere between 2.5 to 2.7 but what, i don't want to get off topic here it's just that we're not entirely sure that the coronavirus cannot be spread by the airborne route and the, uh, there were outbreaks of the SARS uh, outbreak in, for example, the Metropole Hotel, I believe it was in Hong Kong, where hundreds of people came down with the virus, and they were on different floors in the hotel, okay, and it was thought that, and, and there's publications on this, that the air handling system of the, of the hotel has something to do with so many people getting sick in the same hotel, And right now, so it was literally
0: uh, just coming through the vents, they think, possibly.
2: Well, yes. And, and, uh, you know, literally now, if we have if we have the option and if we have the availability within the hospitals, because we're not we don't know everything about this virus yet. We are trying to put patients that are hospitalized into what's called a negative airflow room. And what that means is that when the doors of the room are opened, Okay, the air is contained within the room uh, and there's the air is set to a pressure that's lower than the outside pressure for the room, the doors outside and everything that's in the room stays in the room. Okay, and uh, that's not being absolutely mandated if there are space problems with a number of hospitalized beds, because any typical hospital may only have maybe a dozen of the rooms or two dozen rooms at the most. Uh, depending upon what type of hospital it is, that have this negative airflow. So um, it, it's, not a, it's not a mandate. It's, it's more of an ideal circumstance for hospitalized patients. And obviously, in, uh, physici- in, in doctors' uh, offices and clinics and things like that, there's also a limited number of these uh, negative airflow rooms, if there are any. So um, uh, we have to uh, do our best to, to have the appropriate personal protective equipment so, uh, re- to try to reduce the spread.
1: Is there anything that can be studied about the virus itself to determine these features? Or is it only once we get epidemiological data that we decide, oh, yes, it has gone airborne or it is transmissible in this way? Like We can't just look at the virus closely and then say, oh, because of this size. I I, I don't know. Is there some other feature that it would have that would indicate these things without just having to wait to see how it how it works in the real world?
2: That those those are great questions. I, I don't know the answer to those questions. I'm sorry. Oh, that's okay
0: you mentioned measles uh, obviously the big uh, the measles is at the top of people's mind because of the fact that a vaccine does exist for it which is not being as universally mm-hmm. uptaken as it should be because of certain uh people with bad intent and other people falling for stupid things uh but with this covid19 uh, novel coronavirus what I know they're sort of they are rushing the process to try and get vaccines out there. They're already at the stage where they are starting to test some things in the um, in some humans and skipping animal trials. Could Could you talk a bit about what the process is for this and how how vaccines are even sort of developed and then rolled out?
2: Well, I'll, I can do my best here. Um, we, there is a, a good lecture that we have on, on vaccinations and immunizations and the reasons for vaccinations and immunizations. And um, in, in my lecture, we also talk about the, the anti-vax uh, reasons and, and try to handle that in a, a diplomatic uh, a fashion. <laughs> uh, but um, the, the actual development and manufacturing of vaccines is a little beyond my uh, technical uh, uh, knowledge in terms of molecular that. biology. I, I mean, I, I know that they were able to look at the uh, sequence of the virus uh, right away, and um, they had done some work on the SARS vaccine back in 2002-2003 not knowing that the SARS was going to be able to be contained with mostly um, uh, with mostly the uh, isolation me- me- methods, um, but Some of the preliminary work that was done there, uh, uh, the the company uh, or the uh, the molecular biologists substituted the new molecular sequences into the other work that had been done with the SARS vaccine, and now this is what they're they're working with here. Now most vaccines are actually uh, are actually grown. In, in egg-based media okay at least uh, typically influenza vaccines are, are the most uh, and, and other vaccines are, are done as well um and uh and that enhances because the eggs serve as the as the host for the virus life cycle that we went through at the beginning of this uh, podcast here so it's a, an effi- efficient way to make large uh, numbers of uh, virus particles and large number of, of vaccine but, but the actual technical aspects of, of bringing the vaccine, uh, actually multiplying and making the vaccine and getting the vaccine into trials, it, it, I'm sorry, is beyond my my technical expertise at this time.
0: That, that's completely fine. Uh, so let's let's get back into your uh, technical area of technical expertise because obviously, as well as a professor and uh, uh, the university you, and teacher, you are a you are a practicing medical doctor. So what? what is your process if you, if a patient of yours has suspected symptoms? I know there are, you know, where it tests us and so on are in short supply and there's a certain amount of triaging happening to happen right now.
2: Sure. So a lot of this is happening on the, on the primary care side of things. Now um, we as infectious disease experts are, are, Uh, I wouldn't say we're not on the front line, but we're we're not seeing patients uh, directly, except for patients that might be in the hospital and be ill enough, uh, where we have to kind of generate what we call a differential diagnosis for their illness. And one of them certainly now is the uh, the new coronavirus. But there are a lot of other uh, respiratory uh, uh, microorganisms that can cause uh, illness here. So we can have... Common bacterial pneumonia. Uh, there can be uh, in, there's lots of influenza that's going on in the community. Uh, there's other uh, uh, organisms called uh, mycoplasma and chlamydia, which are kind of halfway between the viruses and bacteria that we talk about in my course that um, uh, can also cause respiratory ailments. So, as an infectious disease, uh, practicing doctor, now uh, we're more likely to try to help the uh, doctors uh, taking care of patients in the hospital sort through this. What we call differential diagnosis for what the uh, what the patient uh, might have, um, and, and certainly we're also and, and the Centers for Disease Control and the state departments uh, health departments have been trying to to send out uh, information for the general public regarding what are the symptoms of the new coronavirus, what are the symptoms of the flu, what are the symptoms of a rhinovirus or a common cold, and, and there are some small differentiating factors that can help. People try to figure out what type of ailment they may have if they don't if they don't feel well. Um, so we're trying to help with that education process as well as infectious disease, disease doctors. Um, there, there's uh, a lot
0: so of so yeah. what are what are the uh, main sort of differential or the main differences in terms of symptoms that people should look out for to know if uh-huh. they have a cold or possible COVID nineteen or just or standard flu?
2: Right. So so the the colds themselves typically have a relatively slow uh, origin. Uh, they, they come on over a, a span of, say, three to five days. Uh, and and, and, and uh, if you have a cold, you know, if you, you probably don't even have a technical fever, which is defined as 100.4 degrees. You may have one of these 99 plus or 100.2 type of temperatures that's uh, going uh, on there. And then uh, typically, again, with the rhinoviruses and the cold viruses, uh, nasal congestion, runny nose okay, and, and cough that might be associated with large volumes of production of nasal secretions are the common aspects of things uh, for coughing. But generally, people are not short of breath because the lungs, the lungs are not affected uh, by the uh, typical uh, rhinoviruses uh, that cause, cause cold. Um, Influenza, uh, there's a lot of symptoms that are very similar between influenza and the new coronavirus, um, and those include fever, and again, real fever that might be 101 to 103 degrees. The the flu tends to come on relatively more abruptly over a span of of 24 hours, Uh, hence the the French term, uh, la la grippe, uh, and my French is not great here, but... People are, were, were kind of knocked, knocked down relatively abruptly and uh, felt uh, a fever and chills. Uh, their muscles uh, ached significantly. Uh, they would also, uh, with the flu, have uh, some nasal congestion, uh, but not as much as a typical cold. Uh, they would also have a sore throat, uh, and, uh, and, and bo- both the sore throat and, and, and rhinovirus can have a sore throat, and so does the coronavirus, but um, uh, And the cough would be there, but again, us- usually related to the respiratory nasal secretions and not necessarily invasion to the lung. Now, there are a small percentage of individuals, and it's probably about 1% or so, that can develop influenza pneumonia, where these shortness of breath and persistent cough uh, may persist. The-, the muscle aches of influenza are really very uh, characteristic, uh, and they tend to last for two or three days. So turning to the coronavirus, there, there may be muscle aches in small percentage of, of, of individuals, but they tend to be relatively transient and maybe only last for about 24 hours. Um, the uh, coronavirus illness tends to uh, be right in between the flu and the, and the rhinovirus. In terms of its uh, uh, beginnings here, so uh, the the symptoms come on in a span of somewhere between 24 to 72 hours. If you're going to develop clinical illness, what's missing often is yet yeah, there, there is oft there's a sore throat, but what's missing again is these uh, degree of nasal uh, runny runny nose, uh, type of uh, characteristics, and there's a, more of a propensity to have a, a dry cough. Again, because the virus tends to have a little bit more of a propensity to be in the lungs and invade the lungs. Uh, So is this
0: invasion of the lungs something that makes it more contagious because you're more likely to then cough it into this aerosol, uh, spreadable aerosol?
2: Well, that's a good question. Um, That's a good question. Um, I'm, I'm not sure I can tell you with quantitative certainty that that's a truism. Because uh, if if you're uh, I guess if you're sneezing and you have a rhinovirus and you're sneezing and you have influenza right. you're gonna you're gonna generate uh, enough of a, a contagion based spread. But I guess hypothetically uh, if you're coughing and you have influenza and the, and the lungs are not involved and the same is true for uh, a rhinovirus that you might be potentially less contagious. But um, This is the the involvement of the lungs is 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 really the reason that the mortality rate from the coronavirus is somewhere between 10 to 25 times that of uh, influenza. Because, as I alluded to, very few people get influenza pneumonia uh, and the the death rate from influenza, again, is somewhere between a tenth to a half of one percent. But the the death rate from the coronavirus uh, the new coronavirus is going to be somewhere between you know two to three percent, and we, we're not going to know exactly what that death rate is completely because uh, until we see what the how the United States healthcare system really responds to the challenge of early diagnosis and and management of this here. But again, across the world now, the numbers are somewhere between uh, two to three percent, and, and those numbers also are going to vary by the the health status of the individual. So the younger you are, the more likely your immune system is likely to be able to manage uh, the illness. Uh, Again, unfortunately, 60 doesn't seem to be very elderly these days, but 60 and above and 80 and above, the the mortality rates uh, uh, tend to be higher. Again, partially because... Uh, uh, as you get older, there are other what we call comorbidities. So people have heart disease that can't handle the infection. People have underlying lung disease like chronic obstructive lung, uh, lung disease, uh, emphysema, and uh, they have less reserve, and then they're more likely, uh, to, more likely to die. Um, yeah I've heard well, sorry here oh. friend.
1: I was just going to say, I've heard that there were pretty vast differences in the fatality rates in the Chinese population because of things like smoking. What other exacerbating factors have you heard about for this?
2: Well, smoking will not be in your favor. uh, That's for sure. And and the reason for that is just just in general, uh, the the smoke. So in in the lungs, uh, and we actually talk about this in my course and I think we actually illustrate this in the what's there's what's called respiratory epithelium, and they have there are uh, hairs, H-A-I-R-S, that stand up in the linings of the lungs. Uh, there's also the hairs in, in, in the linings of the nose. But what happens is when germs get into the lungs, the uh, this these uh, these hairs act together like a like a broom to try to sweep out uh, microorganisms and get them out uh, out of the lungs, and uh, if, you're, if you're a smoker, uh, again, every, people have different degrees of smoking, but there's more likely to be a non-coordination of these hairs, and there's more likely to be a small amounts of damage in the functioning of these sweeping hairs to get out of the lungs. And that's that's one reason why uh, a smoking smoking is a, 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 a additive risk factor for death. But also in China, people if people really smoke for long periods of time, they develop what's called chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or emphysema, which actually destroys the number of air exchange sacks, S-A-C-K-S, in the lung, and then also reduces the ability uh, of an individual to handle a, a virus or any type of infection of the lung.
0: This sort of comorbidity is an interesting thing, because I, I know there, there is not yet an, any kind of antiviral treatment for this either, but I, I did read that they are giving some patients with this Uh, antibiotics which seems counterintuitive because antibiotics don't work against viruses they only work against bacteria but it's to avoid it's to mitigate these secondary infections or these these other things that go along with it right
2: yeah well that's actually uh, so that that's very interesting even before the outbreak uh, of the corona new coronavirus for the first time ever the infectious disease society of america Recommended in the guidelines for pneumonia earlier this fall that patients that, are, uh, that uh, are diagnosed with a hospitalized influenza should, even though we know it's a virus, and we actually have antiviral medications to give to patients that are hospitalized with influenza, but they also concomitantly should be given antibacterial therapy. And the reason for that is because there is somewhere between a 10 to 20% risk that the virus, influenza virus, does what cigarette smoking does. It it, kind of destroys these hair cells and the functioning uh, capacities of the lung to clear, uh, clear germs. And it's more likely that bacteria will actually get trapped inside the lungs and cause a secondary bacterial infection. In fact, it's thought, and nobody knows the exact numbers, that maybe up to 50% of all the mortality from the 1918 great influenza pandemic was due to secondary bacterial infections and not necessarily due to virulence of the virus itself. There's no doubt that the virus was a, a stronger flavor of influenza virus, and people have studied that and are continuing to study that. But the secondary bacteria, you got to remember, not only do we not know it was a virus, but we knew about bacteria, but we didn't have antibiotics in 1918. So if you if you develop this secondary bacterial infection, you were you were going to die. Uh, so getting back to the, your original question is that um, yes, indeed. Uh, so I, I think what, what's happening now is infectious disease practitioners and practitioners are extrapolating from the recommendations now from influenza that if you have the new coronavirus that we wanna reduce the risk of any secondary infection here. So it's not, we, we don't know what the, the numbers are uh, compared to influenza, but if someone is getting antibio- antibacterial antibiotics, that would be the reason for giving them.
0: That makes sense. Um, another thing I read, and sorry to just sort of use you as fact checking, uh, but it's, it's rare to get to talk to an expert. Um, that One of the routes they're looking at to develop a treatment involves taking antibodies from Recovered or recovering patients. Is that is that a common procedure, or is this something that's a relatively new method, or or what?
2: So um, so and we talk about this in the in the lecture on infection and immunity uh, on the immune system. So antibodies are uh, specific proteins that are produced by the body by uh, white blood cells that are circulating in the in the blood and also that are in the the spleen and lymph nodes and these uh, proteins are produced specifically for the invader uh here so hence the, the the new coronavirus and so if you if you have these proteins that can kind of uh what what they, they do is they kind of the analogy would be they they glue, G-L-U-E, down the, the virus and make it easier uh, for our own immune system to target uh, removing the virus from the lungs, removing the virus from the, from the mucous membranes and re- removing the virus from potentially even while it's trans- transferring in, in if it goes into the blood. So getting back to your question here, yes, this is a, a hypothetical means of, of trying to improve uh, the outcomes for this, this would be likely targeted for severely ill patients in the intensive care unit that are on ventilators, where we're actually pulling out several different modes of treatment to try to uh, try to save individuals. This is not really a, a completely new concept. The, the, this is called passive immunization. And, and this concept actually dates back to the pre-antibiotic era before we had penicillin, uh, because the most common cause of death from pneumonia was what we call pneumococcal bacterial pneumonia. And since we didn't have antibiotics, they were trying to take serum from individuals who had survived pneumonia and give it to patients to, to, to try to save them from pneumonia before antibiotics. But again, jumping back, again, uh, several years to, to, to my course, um, in, uh, in Africa, when Ebola was, uh, was ravaging with the largest Ebola outbreak, uh, again, uh, there were survivors from Ebola and they harvested uh, blood from uh, survivors and then tried to try to give it to the sickest of individuals uh, uh, for, uh, for for treatment purposes. So it's not not really a new concept. It, it goes back nearly 80 years. But it is one of the means This passive passive immunization is something uh, that that still you know, may play a role in trying to mitigate this uh, this uh, pandemic.
0: I'd, la- I'd love to talk a bit about sort of, you know, the sort of social distancing and quarantining and what, what we're doing right now. Right now, Andy and I are in different cities, as are you, of course. We're recording over the internet and over phones. But how much of a difference do these practices make, and what's what? What should everyone be doing right now?
2: Sure. So there, there certainly is a lot on the on the internet now regarding, you know, mathematical model, models. Of what you know either could be apocalypse doomsday uh, or uh, the possibility of really uh, uh, you know good outcomes from social distancing and cocooning. Uh, so so the goal of this uh, whole process of social distancing is to reduce the number of infections or to spread out the infections over time. So. Uh, there's something called the, the doubling time of the virus uh, I mentioned that the virus typically would transmit it to somewhere between two or three under individuals. Um, but the, the doubling time for the, uh, the, for the virus, if it, if it went unchecked, if you went from one person to another person to another person to another person, you had a, uh, a susceptible human is going to be somewhere between two to three days. But if you can, separate those with the virus and not allow it to get into other humans in a longer period of time or not at all, uh, then if you do do the math and you do the arithmetic, then the number of people that would be infected would be less, or if not the number of people that would be less, again, this is what you are hearing a bit on the news about flattening the curve. So what what we don't want to see is uh, a, an, an exponential rise in the number of cases because that's going to bring on an exponential rise in the number of people that need to be hospitalized and an exponential uh, increase in the number of people that will have to be in, in intensive care units uh, potentially fighting for their life and fighting for ventilators. And this is not, you know, the situation is kind of playing out in, in Italy and, and tra- tragically in, uh, in, in Italy right now. So, we're trying to learn a little bit from the lessons of that, that dynamic. So the goal is to, if people are gonna be infected, is to, to spread out the need for hospitalization, to spread out the need for hospital care, to spread out the need for intensive care units and, and possibly ventilators. It, it may not come to that. I mean, we're, in an ex- we're actually doing a social experiment right now, um, but again, in certain areas in, in, the, in the Seattle area, this, this scenario is beginning to play out. Um, and uh, I'm I'm hopeful that the situation is not going to play out uh, in in many uh, American cities uh, or may not play out at all, but this is the reason that the social distancing, this is also, and people may not understand this, the reason that schools and daycare centers are closed, it's not because children are going to be sick, because we actually, surprisingly, uh, this particular virus does not, Children can get sick, uh, but they, they don't get sick like adults do, And but they still can have the virus. They can still sh- spread the virus, even though they either have minor symptoms or no symptoms at all. So children are the perfect, uh, uh, what we call vectors, for transmitting the illness among many adult, adult people here. So while the adults are practicing social distancing, uh, taking the kids away from uh, socialization and allowing it to spread in an asymptomatic fashion in, in the uh, child, uh, uh, child uh, education population is, is also another, uh, right. another reason that the schools are closed right now.
0: right I can 't think of a more perfect way of spreading this virus than schools where a, a kid a kid showing almost no little to zero symptoms can take viruses from their house to twenty other children who then take it back to their house full of adults and older people.
2: It's yes, it's. And and again, it, it, you know, it was really, you know, it it's a big decision because obviously people are struggling for uh, for, you know, getting child care and, and the mm-hmm. kids are home and it's having a, a tremendous effect on the workforce and things like that. But it was I'm sure it was discussed at, at very high levels and, and very well thought out uh, to uh, to be part of the, the social distancing as well. Oh.
0: Britain, where, where I'm from, is only just now closing its schools uh, on Friday, and it it took the entire family, including my doctor cousin, four days of haranguing to persuade my 60-something mum, who is a teacher, to stop going into work because it's also again playing against those sort of social conventions where she's like, "No, I, this is my job and I have to do it." And we're like, "You are in the danger zone and you are." potentially you're being exposed to this virus every day.
1: It sort of flies in the face of most of the advice we get in these kinds of moments, like post nine 11, it was all just get back out there and shop. If you aren't shopping the terrorists win and there's no equivalent right. thing. I think that that's a
0: lot of the problem, right? Cause people yeah. do have this sort of a, uh, particularly people from an older generation have this sort of stoicism and we'll just muck on and we'll get through this and we won't let ourselves fall victim to this thing. Whereas it's, <laughs> oh it's, it's the opposite of that. Is what we should be doing.
2: Well, that's right. Uh, well said. And and that's because we're we're dealing with with science and and biology and and you know it's not it's it's not social behavior uh, social behavioral issue. I mean p- certainly that's part of it, but uh, you know biology wins. Right. Right. <laughs>
1: By the way, as well, that, an
2: expert as an expert in this, what were the last two months
1: of your life like? Were you sounding alarms to your immediate friends and family much
2: earlier and exasperated or were you, what was your mood like since well, as January? I, as I mentioned, as I mentioned when I was in Washington DC about a month ago, I, I was right. you know, concerned because, uh, and again, this is interesting. Uh, I hope I don't say anything wrong here, but uh, no, no. You know, China, China, you know, th- this outbreak broke in China, but as a communist society and people are going to, they can be told what they can do. And, um, you know, they, they had to do what they had to do or they had to face the consequences. Um, my my big concern when I was in Washington about four weeks ago was the virus was getting out into Western societies. OK, and had just made its way to Europe, cases in the UK and, 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 and such here. And, you know, obviously these are societies that are not used to people for people being told what to do. And, and how to do it and there's gonna be a lot of resistance for things like social distancing and behavioral issues. So my concern was actually that once this virus got out into Western societies, that um, we would not have the means to contain it like the Chinese have contained contain things now. And you know this has, has played out in, in, in various places in Europe um, and right at that time, the virus was kind of landing on our shores uh, in in various places, not necessarily maybe a little bit from China before the borders were kind of the, uh, the borders were closed, uh, but also from travel returning travelers from Europe. So, yes, my fears were, yes, the the contagion that has been seeded from China, but mostly uh, European shores uh, was going to end up with the situation that we're in now. So, um, yeah, it's been it's been very worrisome. Yeah.
0: It, it, see, it seems to be, um, I guess, a sort of a gradual reframing in people's minds in terms of like not the government is ordering us to do this and screw you, the government, but hey, we're all in this together and we need to help each other by following these steps and doing this for the greater good.
2: Well, we're, um, I'm hoping that most people are abiding by that, by that philosophy. I think there's certainly enough on social media that there's certain, you know, certain segments of our society that are not really doing that. <laughs> Right, so Uh, spring
0: break comes to mind. I saw the footage coming through from Florida uh, yesterday. Well, (laughs) um,
2: there was was a student from my hometown that that was on National Public Radio uh, yesterday, and and they they were having a good time, but but they did say, well, when I get back, okay, I'm going to isolate myself for two weeks. So I I guess that's that's kind of a consolation consolation prize here. What is the go-to source
1: that you're recommending people go to? Just the CDC for up-to-the-minute information?
2: Well, yeah. I mean, the CDC has got a good site. I think the New York Times has a good site. I think the Washington, uh, the, the Wall Street Journal has a good site. Uh, you know, in terms of three, uh, uh, you know, well, uh, I mean, newspapers, and and then uh, you know, the CDC. So yeah, I, I would say almost all the questions can be answered from the from the CDC website. But the both the uh, Wall Street Journal and the uh, New York Times have interesting articles. Like the Wall Street Journal had one yesterday about you know. Can I trust home deliveries okay uh of food okay, and what are what are the implications of that so so there's some a little bit of quirky stuff on each of those sites that that relate to human relations stories that people questions that are asked that the c d c wouldn't necessarily have a a definitive answer on right We'll link to all those then, thank you sure
0: before we go can we can we talk uh, just a little bit about sort of home treatment because I know. Obviously, the most, the more serious cases are told to go to hospital and be treated by in hospitals. But because of limited resources, a large number of people, particularly younger people, are are likely to have less dangerous symptoms and are being told if they show symptoms just to sort of self-isolate and treat themselves. I, I I've seen conflicting information come through about sort of what medication you can and can't take, what may mitigate it the symptoms, what may make the symptoms worse, like a possibly ibuprofen might be a bad idea to take, uh, it seems. Do you, do, you, do you know where the research currently stands in terms of what you should do if you are showing these symptoms and, but not to a dangerous level?
2: Well, well, sure. This is certainly an evolving evolving process here right now. So ibuprofen went from the hot seat to the cold seat within 24 hours. So, you know, there was some preliminary information that came out of, uh, I think it was actually from China, that ibuprofen may be something that made the condition worse. But when people examine the data, the World Health Organization said, you know, today reversed that and said, no, there's no reason that you shouldn't take ibuprofen if you need to take ibuprofen. Now, one one point I want to make before I – I'll answer the question, but is that just because, you know, someone has a fever of 101 degrees doesn't mean they need to take ibuprofen or acetaminophen. So fever is actually physiologic, and we talk about this in my course. We have a whole discussion about fever, the mechanisms of fever – and if you have a fever and you don't know it, or you have a fever and you're just feeling, you know, not too bad, then you don't have to suppress the fever because fever was put into our bodies over over time here to actually help with the process. Now that doesn't mean that if you have a 103 fever and you have this terrible headache and, and you feel lousy, that you you know can't take something for it. Uh, but but ideally, you, you know, you should let itself. Play out uh, if you're not uh, if you're not really uh, very symptomatic from from the fever here. But with respect to other home home remedies here, there's uh, n- there's nothing that, that really stands out that you know people can actually do uh, for this. I mean, symptomatic relief from their cough. I mean, you can still take cough decongestants and, and things like that for uh, reducing uh, coughing and being getting a, a chance to sleep. Uh, tylenol or acetaminophen for, for sore, sore throat or right. ibuprofen. That's would,
0: a paracetamol for the uh, Brits.
2: Yeah, the Brits there. But um, they, th- there is nothing kind of in the home, you know, over-the-shelf uh, uh, drugstore type of thing now that, that can be aside from symptomatic control aspects that you would do the same for influenza or uh, a cold uh, that, that would be recommended at, at, at home right now.
0: Are things like a sort of nasal rinses useful or sort of neutral or um, and just general hydration? I
2: I would not I would not recommend anyone with the coronavirus do nasal treatments particularly because for for a couple of reasons number one the the degree of nasal and involvement uh, and and upper mucous membrane involvement uh, and symptomatic, symptomatic symptomatic wise it's probably not going to benefit that. And number two, if they're not careful, they, they do have the potential to end up with more spread of the virus. OK, so I, I would not really recommend that as a uh, as a, a routine for for anyone for this, for this uh, condition.
0: We've covered a lot, but is there anything else that you think we should know or is useful to know both about the virus itself or about sort of human behavior surrounding the viruses or what might happen in the future?
2: Well, um, I I guess, you know, it's it's tough to tackle in the last few minutes here specifically, but President Trump was on television today with some of his associates talking about some potential uh, uh, medications that might be used in the hospital setting, uh, and some of them are are investigational, some of them are, are currently available, and we're trying to sort through that information right now. Uh, Because there's there's not necessarily going to be any magic bullet that is uh, put forth in the next you know two to four weeks. Uh, And uh, but I, I mean one of the things that again makes this outbreak stand out compared to influenza, people keep saying, well you know we have a lot of influenza going around. And by the way, we do have a lot of influenza that's still going around that can still land people in the hospital and can still kill people. But we do have an antiviral medication for influenza, which is given to all patients that are hospitalized with uh, influenza. And if in the outpatients setting, if, if you get to medical attention before 48 hours, um, you, you can, uh, there's an antiviral medication which, which mitigates the symptoms of influenza. So that, that's, you know, is that called Tamiflu, is that the? Well, that's the trade name, but, but the generic name is called o- ozeltamivir. Um, right. And uh, it's available in a generic generic form. And um, so um, anyway, we, we have that. And that's and that that helps us with influenza and uh, and help can reduce it can reduce in, in, in patients that are hospitalized and patients seriously ill in the intensive care unit. It can reduce the chances of death. So we'd like to be able to find something to be able to help us with this coronavirus to help n- move that needle on the death rate back. Uh, you know, back somewhat here. So um, we're, we're, people are looking, people are, are are working on this here right now, but I'm not sure there's a magic bullet that is uh, on the horizon in the next in the next week or two.
1: Sorry, Andy, do you have a final question or a? My, my question isn't a great one to be a final one, but just I, oh, I'm please? just sort of flabbergasted by the by the numbers and how they don't seem to line up, and I'm just curious if you think that the global case reportings are just extremely low because of lack of testing. Like the fact that so many celebrities have it and we're still saying it's only 200,000 worldwide, that just doesn't match up. It seems like more. They just were able to get tested and the number is actually much higher.
2: Is that your hunch right now or not? Um, Well, I I think um, it it depends upon what country you're from. It also depends upon what, you know, what abacus you're playing on. Uh, You know, the Chinese changed their definition several times uh, of, of, of the cases here. Um, and there are other countries like South Korea, which have a lot of test kits and can be accurate in terms of their their, their number of cases. Here, um, we're not as we're not as fortunate so far in the United States. That that needs to change. It is changing, and it hopefully will be completely different uh, five to seven days from now. I was saying that last week, but here we are. Um, but uh, I, again, th- there's probably under reporting because there's under testing in the United States. But I think you have to look at the numbers from every every country and see how good the testing has been in terms of trying to figure out what the counts are. I, I would say that in general, the number of worldwide cases is probably underestimated, but I just don't know what the magnitude of that underestimation is right now.
0: Right, right. Uh, so what's next for you? What, what are you doing next sort of day to day? What is your current uh, as an infectious diseases
2: specialist? What What, what, do, what do you do? Well, we're we're doing a lot of planning right now because, uh, at least in Wisconsin, the, the number of cases is a little over 100 uh, in the local community. We have there's a, a somewhere around I think the latest number was like 35 cases in in our county. Uh, we're trying to prepare for the worst by having specific protocols for hospitalized patients uh, to make sure that we uh, have all uh, healthcare providers are, are prepared. We're taking care of patients that they are able to use the appropriate personal protective equipment, and they have the appropriate shields and masks and, and things to prevent them from getting sick while they're caring for the sick. Uh, we're trying to prioritize for uh, these uh, negative airflow rooms in the hospital. We're trying to count intensive care unit beds. We're trying to uh, they're trying to reduce the number of. Uh, people that are in the hospital by canceling elective surgeries. I mean, there's a whole central command that's ongoing uh, in in the community here. That's part of a. It's not quite a military setup, but it's modeled after the military control system. And the, these systems are in existence here in our local community to try to again stay ahead of what you know what might be. We're hoping for the best, but we're planning for the worst. I would say
0: that sort of wrapped it all up. But uh, Dr. Yeah. Fox, again, thank thank you for taking uh, time out of the planning and everything to talk us through this. Um, as we said before, as we said at the top of the show, uh, you can also go to The Great Courses Plus and watch a series of lectures that take you through ev- all infectious diseases, both uh, the history, the treatment and future rejections, including the remarkably prescient final lecture where... Uh, recorded substantially before today, uh, you find out about the possible culprits uh, and possible spread of future pandemics.
2: Sure. And, and uh, there may, I don't want to say any final word on this here, but there may be some uh, uh, announcements coming from the great courses about uh, uh, the availability of my course uh, in, in the near future, which I'm sure you'll be, uh, if it's official, uh, you'll make uh, public with the with the podcast here
0: we can definitely do that definitely. and also we still have our thirty uh, day free trial for any of our listeners um so if you go to the great courses plus slash probably you can watch all of dr fox's lectures plus uh you know you've got time learn a language uh do learn about yeah. uh wine or agriculture or a poet that you wish to discover we've you've got time uh but in the meantime um again once more thank you uh dr mary fox for uh, Professor professor. Dr. Barry Barry Fox, MD, for joining us and taking us through all this.
2: Okay. Thank you. Thank you for asking me to participate.